is your pilot or partner a narcissist? Now, this is a topic that, believe it or not, has been widely requested for the Pilot Wife podcast, as well as discussed quite a bit in various Pilot Wife and Aviation Facebook and Instagram groups. So I thought it would be great to find someone who's an expert in this field and bring them on and have them chat with us about this very important topic. Wheels up, we're airborne. Welcome to the Pilot Wife and Aviation Podcast. I'm Jackie Almer, an aviation professional and pilot wife for over 30 years, and I'm your co-captain. I have some free resources to help you live your best aviation and high-achieving life at resources.pilotwifepodcast.com. Buckle up, stow your bags, and let's unpack the high-altitude life. Now I'm looking at my notes because I took some, but we're going to talk about the extreme traits of a narcissist and really how to determine, is this a case where you're in a relationship with a narcissist or is this just simply a case of miscommunication, uh, broken agreements versus expectations, which we do cover quite a bit in the show. Um, and as much as anything, those red flags to watch for and the work that you'll want to do within yourself to recognize it, remove yourself from it, and set yourself up for the most success that you can have. And I really want to encourage you to listen to this show and then pass this show on to your partner. Because one area that we discussed toward the end are agreements versus expectations and how to sit down together and communicate what it is that you need, what it is that you want, and set up some agreements before the conflict begins. This is so, so important. And as I mentioned in the show uh, further on, we get so caught up in the love and the emotion and the feelings and all of that is great. But the critical part of any relationship is communication. And joining me today is Dell Ady Jones. And Dell is a successful relationship coach and the founder of The Way Out of Codependency and Narcissistic Abuse. She's also a published author, international speaker, mentor, YouTuber, blogger, and host of the Relationship Mastery Podcast, which is just about to launch. She's going to share some stories which are riveting from her own past, her own, from her birth story growing up uh, with two narcissistic parents, and then um, keeping that going, reinventing that, if you will, through her own adult relationships until she finally realized enough is enough. So with that, let's welcome Dell to the show. Well, Dell, welcome to the show. And I'm super excited to cover this topic because as you might guess, it's a topic that comes up a lot. It seems that narcissism is a very hot topic these days, um, which is kind of on my radar in terms of conversing about it. So let's talk about relationships and let's specifically talk about the topic of narcissism. And then we'll intersperse that with 
pilot, the, the typical pro, or prototypical pilot personality, which is a little overgeneralized, but I'd love to kind of go down that road too. So um, first of all, tell us a little bit about you and your background with narcissism, and then we'll get into some of the questions. Okay, well, I won't, how long have we got here today? Just double checking. <laughs> <laughs> hey, as long as we need, right? Okay, great. Um, well, um, yeah, so I grew up in what can only be called a narcissistic environment, hence my, hence my um, really first experience with my parents, who I believe were both narcissists. Um, um, and then um, briefly, I was the product of an affair my mother had with my father for about eight years. Uh, she had three children with him and we never met our father. <laughs> he would just, um, he was, you know, just come very late at night when we were asleep. Um, when I would pass him in the street, when I started going to the little village school, he would ignore me. He would never acknowledge us as his children. And I took that to mean that I was unlovable. I wasn't pretty enough and clever enough and thin enough and <laughs> funny enough, whatever the enoughs were. I, I blamed myself, as, as children do. They don't want to think that parents are at fault. They, And also it gives you a sense of control. If you can blame yourself, then you, if you work hard enough, you can change yourself and you can affect a different outcome. So I developed very strong codependent tendencies, which, um, you know, um, led me to be attracted to narcissists. And I always say that children, you know, as we grow into an adult, we always want to have a redo, you know, a makeover. So we tend to be attracted to maybe a parent that we had difficulties with as a child. And I was certainly attracted to very strong, powerful men that were, um, um, I thought they had qualities I didn't have, as in confidence and things like that. So I was attracted to difficult, challenging men. And again, if I could win them over, then I would feel better about myself. Oh, I've just proved that I am actually, um, you know, capable of changing somebody's, you know, mind. So I was very attracted, as I say, to narcissistic types. And after about 50 years of those types of relationships, I just was so burnt. I mean, I, I looked like I was successful on the outside. I had been a Hollywood costume designer. But really, on the inside, I felt like a rag doll with all the stuffing pulled out. I was just I was just empty. I was done. And I had tried so much to overcome, you know, my, I'd been in therapy for years. I tried every workshop and every training. I'd even got a master's in spiritual psychology and just, just kept being in that same loop. But um, at the end of my last long-term relationship, um, I really knew something had to change. I was done. I was done, you know, with being attracted to narcissistic types. And so I just you know, this is years of studying and everything. And I came across a spiritual understanding that really sort of simplified a lot of what I'd learned over the years, but it really helped me and see something very differently. And that's how I really got out of that, that um, cycle of narcissistic codependent relationships. So that's a bit about my story and why I do what I do, which I love because I know I can help so many people um, cut that that habitual pattern of attracting narcissistic relationships. Well, I love that. And that's something I definitely want to circle back around to is how do we overcome that? Um, how does one break that pattern? So we'll come back to that after we've done a few other things. So I would love to um, define narcissism 
sometimes narcissism. It's a challenging word. What, could you define that for us so that we have a pretty clear definition? Yeah. Well, as I, I like to say, it's on a continuum. I mean, really, honestly, we all should have a healthy amount of narcissism in us to survive in the world. It's just when it's unhealthy and there's wreckage all around you and you can't sustain relationships and things like that. So we're talking, I can give you a, a, an outline of some common narcissistic traits. And these are going to be the ones that are way on the extreme um, spectrum. These are the people that, um, you know, truly, like I said, um, have wreckage all around them and, and can be really soul destroying to other people to be in a relationship with. So I would say the very first thing that that um, that they have is a lack of empathy. And um, that's number one. Um, they really cannot put themselves in somebody else's shoes. People are objects to serve them. And when you've served your purpose, you're discarded like an old pair of sneakers because they want something better or they think is better for them. So that's a huge one. Lack of empathy, uh, the, the discard and seeing people as objects to serve them. They often appear to be very charming and confident and seductive. That's one type of narcissist. And um and they feel very, you know, they feel they're accomplished and talented and they feel special and superior to normal people. That's a, a big indicator. Um, so they're a little bit grandiose. They have images of themselves. You know, um, they can be a little um, not based in reality sometimes, uh, even though, as I said, they're often talented. So they do have something special about themselves. But their idea of their grandiosity of how important they are can be slightly overblown. Um, or you sometimes get narcissists that are actually more of the victim ones. They're, they're more the, the one I just described is more of the sort of the overt narcissist and the covert narcissist can be a bit more of the woe is me. Nobody understands me. Still, they think they're special and different and deserve a lot of attention because they have this, you know, they need a lot of understanding and support. Um the other thing they can be is often they appear they they like to think of themselves as knights in shining armor. They like to rescue. The only problem with that is um, makes them feel good in the beginning, but then they will start to tear you down for being less than them. They'll see themselves. They get a kick out of it at first, but then they're done with it after that. Um, as I said, this is incredibly elevated level of entitlement which can lead which can lead to lying and manipulating and crossing boundaries because in their mind there's always a justification they're entitled to because they're special get what they want however they want it's often like a four-year-old child it's like you know I want what I want when I want it and I'll have a tantrum until I get it <laughs> um they uh, as I said the rules don't apply to them only for little people. So they will often lie. And the other thing is, and again, this is not everybody. People can have some traits here and there. And we're talking about the worst end of the spectrum. There's often cheating going on because they do like that flurry of that feeling of infatuation. That first, you know, when they when you meet somebody and all you see is all the wonderful bits about them, they they actually have a very fragile ego. So they enjoy the newness of somebody being enamored by them. 
And often if they're in long-term relationships, they, they miss that because we know each other. We know our little chinks in our armor. We, we know our weaknesses, but we love each other despite that. That's what brings us closest in a, in a normal loving relationship. But for narcissists, it's painful to have their, um, their, their human frailty be witnessed by another human being. Um, they will often have can't regulate their emotions so they will be bullying dominating and shouting to get you into submission to give them what they want um as parents it can be very painful because they don't really see you as a separate being they see you as an extension of them so you you, you know, as a parent they'll often push you to be something you're not or into a profession that you don't even want to do but they want you to make them look good um yeah, I think that's sensitive to criticism. And um, oh, what they do a lot too is they they project and blame and, and accuse you of being the narcissist or they'll twist. Like you'll say something, they'll twist and use it to sort of come back at you and you end up feeling like, oh my God, I, my, my brain feels like scrambled egg. I can't even think straight anymore. It's a very, um, and then there's other things that I know we're going to talk about red flags and I'll talk about some of the other things like gaslighting and love bombing and devaluing and all the other things that come into it. But those are pretty much some of the classic traits. <laughs> so as I said, very before, good um, question. I think you said at the very beginning that both of your parents had this characteristic. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Is that unusual for two narcissists to come together? You know, this is a great question, because um, in in the beginning, um, a narcissist will be attracted to a codependent because a narcissist is all about them. It's a one way street. Their needs come first. And codependents are very happy to go. Yes, you come first. (laughs) They're people pleasers and they are okay taking a back seat and making all about their partner. So it's a perfect fit. But what happens is the narcissist will then start viewing you as less than them. And if you're less than them, they really, they don't like it. They like, narcissists like to have this sort of satellite of other narcissists around them, other people that are special. They're in this special club of special people. So they can be very attracted to other narcissists because they think, oh, you're a match for me. You're You're as special as I am. But then often what will happen is they'll fight to who gets their needs met. And so... But what ends up happening after a while, they will usually, you know, they'll have a few codependent relationships and then they realize that that's not working out. And then they'll often hook up with another narcissist and they're both, they know the games. They know that, um, you know, real intimacy, real love, real, um, you know, commitment to each other is is sort of a little bit missing. The emotion is missing, but they look, they make it look each other look really good. And that's very important how they are perceived. So yes, narcissists can get together. Um, I think my mother was very codependent too, even though she had the persona of being uh, super independent, that can be a byproduct of codependency. You're so ashamed of your your neediness that you act very uh, needless and wantless and super independent because you fear getting too dependent or attached to another human. So, um, but my mum displayed both. I mean, I think... As I said, I think that her um, choices um, when we were children, I don't think that, you know, and I love her dearly and she did amazing things in my life as well. But, you know, I think um, I don't think she cared at the time about the effect 
her affair was having on my father's family. And I don't really think she understood the effect it was having on his children, not growing up without a father and not encouraging that he should at least acknowledge us and visit us. So I would put that in sort of little narcissistic entitlement and selfishness. So that bracket there, I would say. So was he, was he married with children when he started an affair with your mother? Yes, yes. And he only lived a couple of miles down the road. So all the community knew about it. So it was, it was pretty, it was very hard as a child growing up in that environment. And did that marriage survive? It definitely did. So she clearly knew as well of the community. Everybody knew, everybody knew. So, yeah, it was. And what was the age difference with the his other children who would be your half siblings, I suppose? And was there ever did that relationship ever come together? Those relationships? You know what? That's a wonderful question, because um, it didn't for many, many years. I was incredibly I felt very ashamed for existing. I, 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 I felt that I should never have been born. I felt my existence caused this nice, poor family pain. Um, and so I was I was sort of very shy and withdrawn as a child. And years, years later, um, I did meet my father once when I was turning 30. I thought you walked into every relationship with me and I would like to meet you. And so I met him and it was it was very helpful to me. It felt like a, a wound. It felt like a claw was being pulled out that had been festering for many years. I felt a sort of blood curdling scream come out of me as I drove away but it was healing it felt like something ugly was coming out of me that was had been sitting in there for so many years but I met my his oldest daughter she was they were only a couple of years older than than my family I mean my siblings with that father um but they um so I met my older sister then my older half sister and again i I just went into hiding again. I thought I've I've re-hurt this family. I felt really bad. And then it's a long story, but her daughter actually reached out to me on Facebook a few, gosh, maybe about five or six years ago. And we all united. I won't say reunited because there was never anything there in the beginning. And I have to say they are the most remarkable, loving family I have ever met. They have no hostility to my mother's past now. They have, um, it's just such a beautiful story. And it just really brings tears to my eyes when I even think about it. Their generosity, their love, their kindness, their um, willingness to to be family. So I'm very lucky. Did, um, is is his wife still living and is he still living? Um, he he passed away. I think it was a year after my mum passed away, and his wife is, is still alive. She's well in her nineties. I would say ninety, ninety five now, ninety six possibly. So. And was she any part of this reunion? No. Yeah. No. It would have been. I think, and you know, it would have been too disloyal to her. I think. Um, you know. So yeah. <laughs> well, wow, that's quite a story. And as far as you know. Is there any other family? Is there a third family? Are there other? Um, I think we suspect. I think my father was. I think we suspect there could be more, but we're quite we're very happy with with our little unit. We don't we're not that interested in learning about anymore at this point. Um, I was very aware of their existence. They were aware of our existence. 
And um, so, um, yeah, that's that's why I think it was really important. They always knew. And so the, the coming together five years ago was was beautiful for all people involved. I'll bet. And how many primary siblings do you have? <laughs> I'm one of seven from my mother. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, yes. And are you all pretty much aligned with, I mean, that's, that's a lot of people to pull in to let go of certain resentments and all of that. Yeah. How are well, they? They're, they're wonderful. They, we were all raised by my mother. So my elder siblings um, were, had a father in their life until he passed away quite young. And I think he was a wonderful man and, um, you know, his children loved him. Um, but most of us, we all were raised with my with my mother. So I think we just felt that we're, we never considered ourselves half siblings or anything like that. We were we were just mom's children. So very good. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between um, true narcissism and when, you know, everybody goes through, well, I think we all do go through stages in our life where different things are going on, where we can be short, we can become withdrawn and we can seem selfish. Um, that's an interesting word in and of itself. There's a downside to it and a positive side to it, of course. But so how, how does one begin to watch for the difference between true narcissism and just compartmentalization or a time in your life when you're experiencing that withdrawal that could lead one to think, wow, you know, you've disengaged from me, that type thing. Yeah. Well, as I said, I mean, you know, we all we we all get wrapped up in our own stories at time and we get we do compartmentalize and we do withdraw sometimes when we've got a lot going on. But I would say that um it's it's very different from and that's natural, that's give and take in any relationship. And I always talk about, you know, I always say a relationship needs a, a bank account of goodwill, and the goodwill is built from appreciating the little things that we do for each other. I mean, you know, with my partner now, you know, we've been together for 13 years and I always comment on the lovely thing, little things he does for me. Just like, oh, you you don't need the dishwasher. I love that. Thank you. Just little things. And we constantly do that with each other. And we have so much goodwill in our bank account that if either one of us is down for whatever reason and you know, I had a big accident last year that had me bedridden for a couple of months in a in a brace, and he lost his house in a fire. And there's going to be times when we, you know, need to sort of we we need to withdraw a little more than we're depositing in that bank account of goodwill. But when you've both been feeding it and it's reciprocal, and and then that just feels good. That's normal and that's good. But a narcissist will always want to be very he's they're so um because it's all about me they don't think oh I need to be making my other partner feel good and depositing in that bank of goodwill and they tend to withdraw and withdraw and they tend to be hypercritical as well very hypercritical so all of this is like withdrawing and withdrawing and that's when you would say to yourself this feels like a one-way street it's like I'm doing all the giving. I'm the one that apologizes first. I'm the one that tries to play nice, and the other person is always, you know, just withdrawing. So there's a there's a big difference. You'll see, as I said, if it's if it's um, 
you know, just like either one of you are going a little low for a period of time forever, that there's enough there that you know that this is not always like this, that it's 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 just give and take, give and take. So okay. But yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's interesting. I I I don't remember if it's John Gottman. I think it is the relationship. He's an author and speaker, and he talks about, I think it's the four horsemen. And one of the worst ones that comes into any relationship is the emotion or feeling of contempt. Oh, yes. And that came up for me. I hadn't thought about that, but when you were speaking and talking about the traits, I that 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 emotion, that feeling uh came to mind for me. And so I'm wondering if that's one of the red flags to watch for is when you truly feel beyond just belittling, because there's certainly that, but at what point is there a difference between being kind of demeaning to your partner and contempt? Well, I would say both of those are unhealthy and sure. and, and, and shouldn't really be in a marriage. I think if you're sensing for a moment that you, well, first of all, I, I think demeaning another human being is, it comes out of, um, you know, a, a weakness on your side or a pain on your side and to be really aware of that. And that when we demean someone else, it's often to elevate ourselves. And why would we need to do that? If we all know that we're all created equal, why would we ever want to demean another person? The other thing is contempt can often happen, you know, people with codependency, if they're in these narcissistic relationships, they can be, they can become resentful and contemptuous because they're witnessing this really sort of uh, overtly selfish entitled behavior. And they're sort of suppressing themselves. They're, they're shutting down their feelings. They're not expressing themselves because i.e. they don't want to poke the bear, they don't want to, you know, they're walking on eggshells and they know that if they say something, there's going to be a big blow up. So they they suppress and they push down and then that leads to resentment and, and then the contempt. It's like, and it's so interesting because it's like, we, I, I understand and I have a lot of compassion and there's a lot of reason people stay in these relationships. I stayed in them. I can't judge why people stayed. I certainly stayed. I stayed hoping that my partner would see the light and stop being so selfish. But it, it's it's beyond their capacity to do that. And so when we stay in a relationship, you know, constantly wanting our partner to change and feeling resentful because we're not getting our needs met, we end up having contempt for our partner. It's actually, you know, it's, it's sad, but at some point you have to sort of say, hey, you know, they're not going to change. If I'm unhappy here, I should leave, you know? So it's, but it's a, yeah, it's not a healthy emotion to have in a relationship is the contempt. And it goes the other way. I mean, a, a narcissist, when they first meet you, they, they have this image of who you are and you're perfect and you're beautiful and you, you fit the picture. And, and then they do what we call, you know, that's the love bombing stage when they're just wooing you and moving so fast. There's an engagement ring on your finger within a month and they want to move in with you and they want to have babies with you and they want to get married. And they want to capture you because in that moment they they have this idolized image of you and they always have an idealized image of love. And then what happens is, you know, you've got the picture frame over you. And then as you start sort of falling out the edges a bit, <laughs> showing traits that they might not like, they start to get frustrated. It's like back in the frame. So what they'll do is they'll be hypercritical. 
you know, if you if you just one tiny little thing, it's like, you know, how dare you? You can't not be perfect. Stop doing that and get back in that picture frame. And that can lead to, um, um, you know, feeling what's the word you use? I'm, I'm thinking the, the um, ah, well, the resentment and the and the um, feeling demeaning like, and contempt. Demeaning, and, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The demeaning there because they're, they're, they're trying to get you back into what they want you to be. So it can go both ways. Is there a pattern that the that the narcissist is seeking? And what I mean by that is, um, is there a ratio of percentage of divorces? It was a challenging question. And now that I'm asking it, I'm already thinking, well, you know, it could be not the narcissist files for divorce, but the other person who wants out. So that's a different theory. But is the narcissist, is part of their motive to find that one person and bring them into the bubble and hold them there? so that their needs are constantly being met and they don't have to look outside. And at the same time, you mentioned there are often a lot of affairs. So, mm -hmm. well, uh, what we, how we describe it is, well, first of all, yes, they, they, they will always seek to be in a relationship because getting their needs met is primary. So um, they like to be in relationships, but because of the demeaning and seeing their partner as less than they feel justified to have a few more in the wings that can, can that can make up for what their partner is not giving them. Um, you know, it, and that it's so often, um, yeah, that a narcissist could could leave the relationship if they've found somebody else that they think reflects better on them, is younger, more beautiful, more accomplished, uh, special like they are. <laughs> they can often, you know, leave the relationship for that but they would never leave unless there's somebody else in the wings and that's why it can be so painful sometimes because often people will say oh my god he moved on so fast and the truth is they probably had that person in the wings already just ready to take the, the you know front spot um so that's that's what will happen and yes um sometimes the other partner the um, for want of a better word i'll say the codependent um sometimes we'll get to the point where they just can't take it anymore that they they've just the life has been sucked out of them they're um, you know um, feeling emotionally abused um devalued uh, as i said that walking on eggshells terrified of the next blow up um suppressing their needs and wants to cater to the other person um sometimes they just they just have had enough and they leave why do you suppose your mom accepted the boundaries that he put around her, meaning she was never, quote unquote, the chosen one? He never left his wife. He, you know, in a sense, demeaned her in every sense of the word, especially if the whole community knew what was going on. Why do you suppose she accepted that? And was there a point where she walked away from him? Yeah, well, I and that's an interesting point. Um, for sure, I don't think she ever saw herself as second best. I truly think she believed that she was. Um, she had. Um, I, th I think I. You know, I, I think he definitely misled her for sure. I think he always said he was going to leave his wife, and she she believed that. But I also think that she. It's some women f um, feel empowered when they can seduce a married man. It, it it's and, and I wouldn't I'm not saying that that I just think sometimes it's a oh look I was able to win somebody over I don't think she looked at it I think she truly I think she grew up in a very hard um hard hard existence in North Wales um I think her parents 
didn't know how to express love. It was, a, you know, she was, and that was the other thing. It was during World War II in the UK, and it's very different from World War II in, in America. You've got bombs dropping all around you. You never know if you're going to survive the night. Um, and I think people were, a lot of people were just sort of seizing love, you know, in the moment, you know, not knowing if they would be around. So I, I think that was that whole culture as well. Um, but I think as soon as she realized that she wasn't the only other woman, um, that's when she did end the relationship. She ended it then. I think it was very, very hurtful to her to think that she wasn't um, the one he really wanted to be with and she, he couldn't because he was married. She she accepted on some level that, that you know, when he said, I can't leave because for whatever reason. So, so it's a complicated woman, an amazing woman, as I said, on so many levels. And just, you know, we're all doing the best we can. We're all the products of our environment. And, you know, she certainly did amazing things in her life. Um, but as a mother, I, I I can't, I do think sometimes, what were you thinking, <laughs> you know? But, sure. uh, but anyway, but yeah. So walk us down the path then of your own experience with relationships in this way. Um, and maybe the timeline of, what attracted you, which obviously the charismatic personality and a lot of those traits. Mm -hmm. And then at what point um, the red flags and what were the red flags, like what came out and at what point you realized, oh my gosh, I'm basically in the same somewhat situation as my mother or, or repeating this yeah, situation yeah. from my childhood. Yeah. Um, let me think. Um, well, I, I know I've I felt very um I had such terrible low self-esteem growing up. I felt, you know, hearing the word illegitimate, I thought that meant I wasn't legitimate as other people. <laughs> and being called the B word, <laughs> you know, I'd never heard somebody use that word in it as a, you know, as a compliment. So I knew I in, internalized that as I'm bad, there's something wrong with me, because I was a B word. And um so I grew up and it was it was very strange because my mom. My mum had lots of airs and graces. So on, on well, one level, we looked so superior to everybody else. And on the inside, I felt such less than, you know, it was this really weird sort of dichotomy. Um, growing up, I very much um, wore my heart on my sleeve, I think. And um, and um, I just, I don't know, I just got myself in situations where I was really, 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 I was just so needy. I was needy. I hate, I mean, it took me a long time to be able to admit that I was needy because I was like this very false front of being super cool, super independent, didn't need anything, needless and wantless, just in case I was too much for you and you wanted to run away or leave me. So I was very, had this persona, but I think my neediness came out and there were, you know, times when you know, I was just, I can't even, it was a blur, my whole, I mean, I didn't even want to exist when I was 19. I just had been so hurt and so used at times that I just was like, I, I don't have what it takes. And then in my 20s, there were some wonderful men I met, but it was almost like, I think as the Groucho Marx saying, like, I wouldn't want to be in a club that would take me, something like that. It was like, I didn't want to be in a relationship where that person loved me because I thought, well, you've got really low standards. You've got bad taste. You know, it was that sort of thing. So I I needed the challenge all the time, the unavailable men, the addict or the super talented, the artists or the, you know, people that I felt had qualities I didn't have. So I would just ping pong. I go from really nice people that I would leave. And then I go after these 
wildly, you know, narcissistic man and then get so hurt, I'd go back to a nice guy and then leave them for the one, the unavailable one. And I think when I was in my 40s, I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, I've got the word longing and loving mixed up. I didn't feel like I was in love unless I was in this longing, this yearning. I had to yearn for somebody to feel those feelings of love. Um, so it was fascinating. And so basically, you know, I'd been in therapy for many years. I'd been on a spiritual path since I was 21, trying to make sense of my very crazy childhood. There's a lot of the other stuff that I won't go into right now. But I, um, yeah, I just knew that relationships were just a mess. They just, my relationships were a mess. And it wasn't, it was because I was choosing so badly. I was, I was driven, as I say, to be attracted to unavailable men. Um, but, um, you know, I never go into too many details about my divorce, but let's just say that was the culmination of me going, something has to change. Something big has to change because I can't do this again. And, um, and I took a couple of years off because the first, after my divorce, the first couple of men I dated were same types. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't learned anything. <laughs> so, I took a good year off for more, about 18 months. And I thought, this is just your relationship with yourself. That's where it starts. And that's what needs to be solid. And it was amazing. I mean, that because I would jump from relationship to relationship too. But that time off really helped me see that I had everything inside of me that I needed, that these men were not completing me in any way. I mean, I was an artist, I was a writer. I mean, I was accomplished myself. I was a designer. I, but, and I had, you know, this, I, I really just saw how, how I had resilience and, and wisdom. And that's the other thing. If you're in a narcissistic relationship, it's often a narcissist will have you question your own sanity and you don't start listening to your inner wisdom, your inner guidance and your intuition. That's the gaslighting. It's like you, so you see something happening in front of you and you're like, this feels this way. And they're like, no, you're crazy. That's not that way. And even if you see it with your own eyes, even if you were to pick up a phone and see a message and like, well, I can see it. And they're like, you're crazy. You're making this. It was just nuts. So you come out of these relationships feeling like you're crazy. You can't trust yourself, which is worse than not trusting other people. And um, so that time alone going really much deeper into my studies, just I came out the other end and it was like a whole, whole new me, whole new way of being in the world. And then I met my present partner that I'm, we've been together for 13 years and we have the most beautiful relationship. He's kind, he's gentle, he's caring, he's loving, he's, you know, it's just incredibly different. So yeah. how, and, you know, certainly you can say if you don't want to go there, because I understand, because it's public. Um, how often or do you at all find yourself bringing in situations from the past? So, for instance, when there's conflict in this relationship, which every relationship has conflict, something you disagree on or whatever, do you find or in the early days, was there a tendency to bring in stories from the past and kind of project a situation from a previous relationship onto this new one? Is that common? Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't, well, I'll describe what it was, in fact. So when I was divorced, I had two teenage sons and I felt very much that they had um, 
being negatively impacted by some of the behavior in the relationship. And my focus was on raising them. And I wanted them to have the smoothest um, experience. And I also knew that I had a tendency to fall madly in love <laughs> with somebody. And I didn't want to risk that. I didn't want to risk that, you know, fine being madly in love with their father, but I didn't want to be madly in love with a different man and then risk losing myself in, my, in a relationship that could potentially cause me pain because I didn't have a good track record with relationships and distract me from being the best mother that I could be. So I I met my my current partner, his name is Hoodie. We'll give him a name so I can. And um, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, you're a really nice man. You're not, and I said, he knows this story, so I'm not, <laughs> not telling outside of school. I thought you're a lovely man, but um, I just, I, I liked him. It wasn't that love at first sight by any means. And I didn't want love at first sight. And uh, I thought, well, you're a lovely man. And I could, we can be sort of friends as I'm raising my children. I, I was very clear from the beginning. I don't want to get remarried. I don't want to live with you, with anyone. I just want to be the best one I can and focus on myself for once, building my career and my, you know, because I'd taken, obviously, when I was the costume designer and then I got married. And so I was an artist and other things during that marriage, but not um, a full-fledged, you know, career. So... It really, our love grew very slowly. And, and I often say, you know, because somebody once said to me, oh, I hear you're madly in love again. I said, God, no, thank God not. I'm gently in love. I'm not madly in love. And so, yeah, there wasn't a lot of drama in the beginning of our relationship. It, it was very, very different because it started more, as, as I would say, as, as friendship. And we don't usually you know, fight with our friends. We fight more with our partners because we have expectations. So it's a very gentle beginning. And, and I, as I said, I think when I saw that it could be done so differently with that beautiful way of just loving and appreciating each other with not that much of an expectation, it just built and built and built and built. And then we had this beautiful foundation of love and respect. So I don't know if that answered your question, but... Absolutely. So I want to, um, I'd like to dive into the pilot persona, since that's um, a large part of my audience is the aviation world and that topic, because, um, you know, in the pilot world, there's a lot of compartmentalization that goes on as, as a result of their job. You know, they have to be willing and able to get into the flight deck and have emergency situations and different things going on. And they have to be able to completely block out all the rest of the world, anything else going on, focus on tasks at hand in mm -hmm. a different way than a lot of other careers, obviously, um, because it can be life or death. Yeah. Clearly in an airplane, if you're not careful and you're not paying attention and you're not able to drown out that noise and the, the well, pilots have a persona or attached to them a lot of times right or wrong. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of generalization and labels that go into that. And so I don't want to, I don't want to create more of that by any means. Um, but I'm just wondering what the difference is in terms of, I know for me for a long time, and I've been married for 34 years to a pilot, um, but 
very often, you know, they, they, they work off of checklists and systems and very often it can be short communications or no communication back in the day before cell phones and texting and a lot of that. Um, yes, you could figure out ways to find out was the flight delayed, you know, what was going on and that type thing. But as the partner at home, a lot of times we made up a lot of stuff, right. About what was going on. And if, if someone comes from a negative past, we're much like what you were saying, you took on the responsibility of not feeling good enough or worthy enough. And, you know, you were the cause of a lot of this type of stuff. I think that there could be a tendency in that aviation relationship to take that on. So what are the things, and I've heard it in a lot of the pilot wife groups that I'm part of, which was kind of what brought this up to begin with. And I had people requesting this topic, um, you know, because partners, partners will write in and say, oh, he's just being so narcissist, narcissistic, uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's always his way and it's always about his schedule and always about this. And I see where that can happen. And certainly there are narcissists among pilots without a doubt, but I fear sometimes that they get wrongly labeled because the reality of it is with their job, they can't control their schedule. Always. They can't control the weather. They can't control mechanicals. They can't control, you know, a lot of times when they can't be there for this or that, or you were planning on it and something happened. So how does one go about, um, reconciling all of that? I know that was a lot, but hopefully that made sense to you. No, it made complete sense. And, you know, it's funny, I, th I think there are, and I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that is 100% a life and death situation. I, th I do think there's also other professions where, um, and just, for, I'll just say men for right now, men and women, but say even like in the film business or production, there's millions of dollars riding on getting that, you know, the, the, getting the, what needs to be shot in that day, all of these other things. So they can tend to sometimes people like producers or directors or pilots or, you know, um, that sometimes their jobs are really surgeons on call, doctors on call. They're going to miss things. They, their job requires that they keep going until it's done. And I don't and I think when, especially if you marry somebody that's in that profession, I was in a, my marriage, my ex was a restaurateur and believe it, not even in the restaurant, a lot of pressure, especially when you've got a few different restaurants. Um, and I think you sort of just have to understand that's part of the marriage. And that's not narcissistic that they have to put their job ahead of you sometimes and the children. It's just the way it is. Um and to not take that personally, to understand that comes with that job and to, but if it comes home and that behavior is acted out in the home, like I come first and, you know, they, there's no love and communication. It's just that sort of, I often say, if you feel like your partner's, you know, secretary, nursemaid, wife, mother, you know, clean, clean up on aisle nine. I mean, if they basically bark orders at you to take care of everything because they're so tired and they need their alone time, then I'd say, well, maybe they are a little narcissistic, you know, but say they do when they are home. If, you know, what does it cost them to be so loving to their partner and appreciative for all that that partner has done while they've been away with the kids, with the school events, with the everything to acknowledge them for that. 
and to spend some time with the children if they're away a lot. There's different things. And so if they make up for it within the relationship, then I wouldn't label them as narcissistic. But if they bring their job home and they start acting like, you know, they're in charge of everything and everybody is there to serve them, including the children, then, you know, maybe they do have some narcissistic traits. Yeah. You know, there's a term in aviation, pilot in command. And of course, um, mm -hmm. I always like to say, well, that was great when you were on the road, you know, when you're gone on a trip, you're pilot in command. And when I'm at home and you're not here, I'm in command and you have to respect yeah. that role that I'm taking on when you're not there and trust me to make good decisions and stand behind the decision that I've made. I'm going to make mistakes too. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to own those, but you know, and some can correct and some it's kind of like, well, that was the best that I could do at the time yeah. with the situation going on. So I, yeah. And I know for, for me and a lot, I mean, we talk about this in, in, you know, among pilot wives and partners is that the, what I call the re-entry into the home base, they've been gone for a while. They've been running their life and compartmentalized there. We've been home somewhat compartmentalized and running the show mm -hmm. here. They come home and there's two things. One, they can't just walk in and upset the apple cart and start changing the way everything's been done. And at the same time, I know for me personally, with my husband's personality type, he definitely needed that time to decompress. He wanted to walk in. First thing he did was unpack his bag, change his clothes, get out of airplane clothes, and just kind of, you know, re-enter. And then he would come in and and be part of the family and all of that. And at first I had a little bit of a hard time with that, even though I'm from aviation as well. I was in the profession before I started dating him. Um, but over time, I learned to, to really respect that and realize, okay, that's not, it's not that he's avoiding me. That's just what he needs to do. And then once he gets that, then he walks out and he's, you know, Mr. Nice Guy and all of that kind of thing. So any thoughts on that or, or how to, maybe help more people who are listening, who are challenged with that transition into understanding some of that and how that's not really being narcissistic. It's really recharging your batteries, I suppose, so that you can be fully engaged in the relationship and in the family. Oh, 100%. And, and again, um, it's just healthy, loving communication. You know, if your partner comes in and just says, you know, this is part of what I need. You know, I'm not ignoring you. I just need this time to sort of transition, basically. And then I'll be available. That's really sweet and lovely. And I'm sure all of us would. And, you know, just loving words of appreciation. We give each other the space we need. Um, but if somebody comes in and starts, you know, yelling, and why is this done? And why is that done? I can't take it. I'm going off to my room. I don't need to come home to this or you know, that would be really jarring for anybody. So it depends on how it's communicated. And again, it's just simply just that love and respect for each, as you said, each of your roles. You would never go over to the cockpit and start saying, I can't believe you're doing that or, or you know, criticizing the way he flies a plane. Um, so I think, again, it's mutual respect and an and understanding. I mean, my boyfriend's so lovely, but, you know, he's really built, building his house right now. And He'll start come to, sometimes come through the front door and I've been working all day doing coaching and things. And then he'll start talking at me at, as he's coming down the hallway. And I'll sometimes go, it's like, land first. Let's just, you know, but he's got so much to share and wants to tell me, but it can feel, I get flooded 
And I have to say, you know, I know you need to show up, but could you just take a break? Could we just say hi? Could I ease into you, you know, because it's just too much for me. I know my, my senses get overloaded, but, and so he understood completely and he doesn't do that anymore. But we, it was a really, we had a lovely conversation about, I know you need to share this with me, but can we just give it, give it a few minutes? Just, you know, let me get my head around. It's not me in my house anymore, just doing my thing. You're coming in and you want to share things, but just give, give that breathing space. And I think lots of people feel that way. And I think the more that we can understand that, you know, I, th I think taking things personally is a huge thing in all relationships. You know, um, I think when we can respect that everybody has their own, like I usually use my little Buddha here. <laughs> my That's our, at our spiritual essence. We're all one. We're all the same. But we do. We walk around with these little bubbles on our head full of our thinking and and I think just respecting that each of us has got a lot going on in our heads and we don't always see the world in the same way. And to just, if our partner, I mean, if it's cruel and abusive, then that's different. But if they just see things slightly different to us and they're off in their own world a little bit, do not take it personally. It's not, it's just they're in their world of thinking. That's all that's going on. So... That's such a great phrase, and it's one of my favorite of the four agreements, and that is don't take things personally. It's a fabulous book if anyone hasn't read it, and I'll include it in the show notes. But, mm. you know, we do have a tendency to take things personally initially when something happens. And I do personally believe that that is due to some experience from our past, yeah. something that's happened where, again, we either made it personal or it was personal. And so now we're bringing that into the present and projecting it into the future. But it is interesting when you can take a step back and say, is this really personal to me? Like, mm -hmm. did this really happen? Did this thing it said meant as a, you know, a personal thing to me, or was it just a passing comment and it landed wrong on me? Yeah. Well, I'd like to use a very, um, an example of that. I was in a relationship where there was lying and cheating going on and I took that very personally uh, because of my wound of not being good enough I immediately went into um blaming myself it's because I wasn't good enough and how could they and all of this thing and I was constantly I was mortified and all this different thing and then when I really was able through the spiritual understanding that I share are you really we call it a separate reality and when I was really able to see that my partner, in his head, justified his behavior, and he had nothing to do with me. He could have been married to Cindy Crawford, and he would have been doing what he was doing. It just because it was his thinking. It was the way he thought about the world, the way he thought um, that, you know, what, what she doesn't know doesn't hurt her, whatever, whatever, whatever thinking he had, he was justified in doing what he did. And once I was able to really see separate realities, and see that it wasn't because of me, I was able to let go. And I found such peace in that. But when I was making it personal, that it's because he didn't love me enough or didn't respect me enough or I wasn't good enough, I had all these things. All I was doing was absolutely, you know, punishing myself and whipping myself in a frenzy. When I was able to just say, gosh, that's a sad way to be in the world. I wouldn't want to be in, you know, that way in relationships. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's loving and whatever um I was just able to separate from it but it took it took some years definitely took some years of, of, of deep understanding about 
you know, our spiritual nature that was able to do that. You know, and you bring up a good point. He could be married to Cindy Crawford and all of us can look back and think of Beyonce and um, Jennifer Garner. I'm thinking of a few off the top of my head, Sandra Bullock, people who are, you know, that we would put up there. They're beautiful and they're sexy and they've got all all the stuff that we think is what makes someone stick. And and you're so right. It doesn't have anything to do with you personally. And I get that that's hard if you're experiencing it and going through it, but over time, when you can take a step back and really look at it, just like you were saying, it, it really didn't, it was a weakness. It was a flaw. It was something in their character. It was them trying to satisfy something missing in their life. And it wasn't that you couldn't fill it. It wasn't any of that. It was just something within them Mm -hmm. that was lacking and you could have done a million things and it still wouldn't have filled that hole. If you no, that's 100%. You said it beautifully. That's exactly what it is. It comes from, a, you know, we often think of narcissistic types as these strong, powerful, you know, men, men, I'll use men because that's the ones I've experienced. Um, but really, they're, they're full of fear. They really are. If you, if you are that truly confident, you don't need to bully and intimidate and dominate another person. If you are truly that confident, you don't need outside validation, newness, new partners to fill you up. So it does come from a very wounded place. So I actually don't have sort of anger and hatred towards that. I have compassion. I am like, you know, not compassion like, oh, I'll forgive you. We can still be together. But compassion in the way of like, I like I just said before, I wouldn't want to live in your world. I wouldn't want to live in a world where I was so fear-based that I thought I had to um, lie and manipulate my way through life. That to me would be terribly sad to live that way. So I just, um, but it, yeah, just it, and for anybody going through this, I'm in no way, I know how stuck in that pain I was for a long time, but I also love that I was able to find the freedom because um it was, it's awful. It's awful to keep going around and around in circles and try and make sense of somebody else's behavior. So you brought up a word a couple of times that I really truly feel is the heart of any positive relationship, whether it's a love relationship or a business relationship or a parent child, and that is communication. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when we start just about any relationship, we don't come at it from the point of thinking, all right, we need to sit down and we need to have some clear communication. We need to really spend that time figuring each other out and communicating effectively. So we set up boundaries, have expectations, do all that stuff. Instead, of course, we get caught up in the romantic side of things and feeling good and experiencing all that. So what are your thoughts on um, starting a relationship or you know, further into a relationship, if a, if a relationship hasn't done a good job, if the two haven't done a good job of expressing and, and really communicating at what point and how does one bring that into the relationship? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, first of all, I have this thing that's like expectations versus agreements. And it's like, you know, expectations set you up for, for miscommunication, um, their and hurt and anger and all of this other stuff it's like just you know have agreements like this is what I need from you or I'd like from you is that okay with you are you in agreement with this 
Is this something that I can count on you to, to, to be there for me in this way? Um, you know, just simply like you were saying earlier about that, that, you know, if you're with somebody that has a job where they're going to be have to be taken away and things, you know, maybe the agreement is I won't berate you or make you feel guilty for this because I understand this is part of your profession. And and so I agree that as much as I might be hurt or disappointed or whatever, that, you know, I'm, I understand I'm, I'm this is the agreement we have with each other. The other thing is, I always think our past relationships are great, great. They give us so much fuel or fodder for our next ones. And I know I can look back on my chaotic relationships, my relationships that were narcissistically abusive. And I see ways in which I showed up that I would I was determined never, ever to do again. Um, I was never going to suppress myself to try and keep the peace. I knew I was going to speak clearly and from a place of, of um, responsiveness, not reactionary, is, is one. Um, yeah, and just, I love with a wide open heart. I, I am not damaged from any um, previous, you know, affairs or anything like that that may have hurt me back then. I know that I'm resilient and I'm strong. And I know if anything was to happen, it's entirely to do with the other person. If I'm showing up loving and caring and a good partner, whatever's going on is something in their head. I don't take that personally. So that, And I also, as I said, I know I'm resilient and I've bounced back from hell before and I can do it again. So I don't have that closed off heart. I'm very open. And um, so, but I do think, you know, we, we often say like in, in businesses, we have meetings. We have ex we, we talk about our expectations. We talk about the agreements in, in business. But for some reason, society has told us that, you know, oh, that's too um, that's too dry for it. Like, let's just be in love and madly. And, and we're all sort of in the dark, guessing at what each other needs and afraid to sort of voice our thing. And, you know, I, I just think as long as you're loving, just tell the truth. <laughs> Just, you know, just express what's going on and, and also choose your moments. If somebody is what I call a, in a low mood or going through a hard time, you know, wait, don't don't communicate from that place, because that's when our thinking can cannot be the safest or trustworthy thinking. Wait till both people are um, in a better space. And I'll use an example with my children. Um, because of the way, you know, uh, my marriage was, I was afraid of my sons picking up some habits. So if they were ever rude to me or dismissive or anything, I had a tendency to react in the moment and say, hey, don't do that. Don't speak to me like that. And the more I sort of um, got deeper and deeper into the spiritual understanding that I'm in, um, I really saw that it wasn't the right time to correct them, that I was going to definitely going to talk about it. But the next day when moods were calmer, say if one of my son was a bit sort of agitated about something, I know it's incredible because what happened is I think, oh, I'm going to address this tomorrow morning. And within like five or 10 minutes, my son had come to me and say, God, mom, I'm so sorry. I snapped at you then. I really didn't mean to. And I was like, God, if only I'd learned this sooner, because when you, jump on somebody in that moment, they become defensive and then you and then, and then fights, all emotions get triggered and heightened. And but talking about important things when you're calm rather than in the heightened emotions. And it's not, you're not brushing it under the rug. You're just waiting for, you know, 
has to cool has to prevail and and the right moment to discuss it from a loving place so that's another thing i think about communication very much so I love that. And I have what I call the 24 hour rule. And I wish I would have learned it early on, but I did learn it probably about 15, maybe even 20 years ago. And a lot of it came up once the written word came out, email, texting, where the only person who gets to put context into the conversation is the reader not the writer. So we're making up stories about what we think this person means or the emphasis that they're putting on that word. So after getting myself in trouble a few times, I learned to just take a step back, not be reactive, take 24 hours, sometimes 36, sometimes 72, sometimes a whole week had to go by. But it was interesting. I would allow myself the opportunity to write and vent it and get it out what I thought I would have said to them had I had the opportunity, but I never sent it. And it was so interesting over time, how just even sleeping on something or coming back and looking to looking at it and looking at my own words and how sharp they were and thinking, okay, now that I've had time to take a pause and a deep breath, I, I would totally react in a different way. And just like you say, quite often before it even got to that point, that person would come back and express something. So it's such a powerful pause um, mm -hmm. and hard sometimes because it's so we're conditioned to be reactive. Yeah. So conditioned. But exactly. if and that also being told, don't go to bed angry. And sometimes it's like, no, you need a good night's sleep so that yeah. you can see something with fresh eyes the next morning. So it's not, you don't have to go go to bed, you know on that level of anger, but just pausing the conversation and just saying, you know what, I don't think we're getting very far tonight. In fact, we're, we're digging ourselves deeper into something. Why don't we go and have a restful night? And then, you know, in the morning, if it feels appropriate, talk about it then. And it just, just, as you said, 24 hours is, is a wonderful, at least 12. <laughs> but, yeah, for but, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how differently you feel once you revisit it with a mm -hmm. little bit of time and you know, thought process under it. And I, I love um, agreements versus expectations. I think it was Kyle Cease who said, nobody ever breaks your heart. They just break your expectations. And the first time I heard that, I thought, wow, that, that really is true. That really is true. So that's pretty powerful. Well, Del, thank you so much for your time and your wealth of wisdom. Any final thoughts you have before we open it up to learn a little bit more about you and what you do and how to find you? Any final thoughts? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, our relationships are a reflection of the relationship we have with ourselves. And I know that when I was in narcissistic relationships and I was treated like um, like when my partner treated me like I was a second-class citizen in the in the relationship, that's because that's what I felt about myself. I saw myself as second best. Um, when they lied to me, I was lying to myself. The evidence was there, but I was too scared to, to, to admit it. And, um, you know, when they were abusing me, I was abusing myself by staying in that abusive relationship. And the funny thing is, is I took that, as I said, I took that um, year off, year and a half off, and my self-esteem grew and I saw myself so differently and I valued myself and I respected myself. I drew in a partner that valued me, loved me, respected me and saw me as an equal. So I often say to people that do suffer from codependency, you can never change your partner. 
all you can do is ever change yourself. But as you make those changes within yourself, you, that will be reflected back to you. It might mean it might not be the partner you're with right now, but there is somebody that will love you and respect you and adore you and treat you like you deserve to be treated. So don't be afraid of um, doing the work on yourself. That's what I was, I would say is one of the most important things. You know, and I love that because I think that is so true. And I know just the decades of personal work that I've done on myself, it's hard to hear those words at first because we do want to be reactive and it's, he did this to me, or she did this to me, and it's their fault and they're wrong and all of that. And the reality of it is it's, it, it's only wrong for you. It may not necessarily be wrong in their world. That's not condoning their behavior. That's not condoning what they did. It's, but it's kind of like, um, agreements versus expectations. You have an expectation. It's fair for you to set those boundaries and a boundary and an expectation is not necessarily an ultimatum. It's just simply stating, this is this is the boundary for me. And I respect it if you don't respect my boundary, but we probably won't remain together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, just, you know, trust your wisdom. I, I use the word wisdom. It's it's your intuition. It's your gut. If, if you feel that something is not right, I mean, often I'll, I call it my personal thinking. It comes in with like, I remember mine was, well, it's not that bad. At least he doesn't hit you. I mean, it's like, but that was my personal mind coming in, trying to justify, trying to minimize, trying to, you know, because I was so afraid of the unknown and, and things like that. And whereas my gut was screaming, this is not right. This is not right. Get out, you know, save yourself. And um, that's what I would say. Your gut will never lead you wrong. And often if we've been brought up in chaotic situations and the adults in our life you know you say oh somebody touched me or it didn't feel right and they say oh don't be silly that didn't happen or the the parents can sometimes dismiss their children's feelings and so if you grow up not trusting your own feelings you often get into situations where where you're sort of almost like detached it's like a head <laughs> that's not attached to their body it's like you're not really feeling the signs that things are not right or that or the, the other thing is that, you know, love is not enough. This is a great one too. Love is not enough to make a relationship work. It just really isn't. And we're led to believe it is. Sometimes relationships, um, they, they take more than love. They take, as I mentioned, like love and respect. I mean, respect to me is the foundation of a relationship. If you genuinely really like the person you're with and you respect their values and how they show up in the world and you know that's that's for me the foundation of a relationship not this sort of but I love them even when they're abusing you you know we we love shouldn't hurt should not hurt right very good so tell us a little bit about what you do and where we can learn more about you Wow. Yeah. So um, I am a relationship mastery coach and I do, as you can tell, specialize in codependency and narcissistic abuse and also um, healing from childhood trauma. Because often we, you know, we have these little innocent little children within us that are choosing our partners and, and responding in arguments and things like that, that unhealed childhood part of ourselves that that really needs to be, um, you know, paid attention to in an appropriate way, not have them run your life. Um, so I do coaching, I do 
group programs. Um, I do a lot of speaking engagements. I've just got a new podcast coming out, but it's just myself and a co-host. And we just every week we talk about a different topic. It's called Relationship Mastery. It's about to be launched next week. And um, yeah, you can find me at deladyjones.com and that's my website and you'll see my programs and there'll be something on there about the podcast. As I said, it's called relationshipmastery.show. And yeah, I look forward to, and also I do a complimentary uh, 25 minute um, discovery call if people are interested in coaching or programs and they want to know a bit more about it. So yeah, that's what I do. I love it. And all of that will be in the show notes. Well, again, Del, thank you so much for your time and your wealth of knowledge. And we will look forward to tuning into your podcast. Oh, lovely. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Jackie. Do you ever find yourself on the struggle bus with relationships, career, or life in general? I'm a mindset and peak performance coach, helping women rediscover their own sense of identity and purpose, avoid turbulence, and put their own oxygen mask on first. Together, we work to get you out of autopilot and create a better flight plan for life and relationship success. As a pilot wife for over 30 years, I've navigated thousands of miles and moments in aviation, mommyhood, business, and life in general. I would love to offer you a free call to see if I might be able to help you too. You can go to coach dot pilotwifepodcast.com. And if you have a topic suggestion or a story to share on the show, go to ask.pilotwifepodcast.com. And of course, you'll find all of this at resources.pilotwifepodcast.com. Please take a moment to review and rate the show on whatever your favorite podcast app is. This helps the show get found by others who need what we have here. And you might win some fun swag for your troubles. I'll see you on the journey. And thanks for listening.